Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Don Schwartz is an actor and journalist. His book, Telling Their Own Stories, Conversations with Documentary Filmmakers, is available from Amazon. His film reviews and filmmaker profiles appear regularly on FromTheHeartProductions.com. And Carol Dean and Don Schwartz love documentaries, and they created this show to encourage people to watch more documentaries. Yes, Claire, we did, because we love documentary filmmakers. We believe they're our greatest asset. They find and film stories that are unique and make a contribution to society. And we're so honored to have Jill Ann Spitzmiller today to talk about her most recent film, Still Dreaming. So thanks for joining us, Jill Ann. I'm so happy to be here, Carol and Don and Claire. Thank you. Well, we want to hear all the backstories on finding and making this brilliant film. But first, let's listen to Don Schwartz give us his review of Still Dreaming. Well, thank you, Carol. You're still dreaming. I, as you heard, I'm an actor, and this is, a, this is a movie about actors putting on a show. And it was close to my heart and also close to my stomach, given the things that us actors have to deal with. Uh, Still, Still Dreaming is directed uh, by Jillian and uh, uh, co-director uh, Hank. Excuse me, I have to check here. Uh, Hank Rogerson, and it covers uh, the work uh, at a at a at retirement home for actors and those in the entertainment business. It's called the Lillian Booth Actors Home. It's just outside Manhattan. And the film shows the decision and execution of a play put on by the retired performers. And it was two years in the planning to, to get started with the play. And, uh, and they decided to perform using the residents of the home, uh, <clears throat> A Midsummer's Night Dream by Shakespeare. And... Uh, two gentlemen were hired to, as directors of it, and they are Ben Steinfeld and Noah Brody of the Fiasco Theater. And they, uh, they directed it and worked with the actors throughout a long period of time. And uh, for me, Shakespeare would be challenging for, for anybody and everybody, and uh, we covered the challenges that the, uh, the retired entertainers had to deal with and the stories were really heartrending and also totally inspiring to see the struggles they went through and what they were able to accomplish as individuals and a group. I mean, they struggled like any of us would to learn their roles and to work together and uh, under duress, and they, they did an incredible job. Uh, and the impact of this film for me was it's another message it's another message that we really need not, we should not be retiring old people. We, we should not just put them out to pasture. I remember the first time I went into a, a, 
uh, a retirement community, and I saw older people in a corner just in their wheelchair, and nothing was being done with them or for them. And I always knew there was a lot more to to us seniors than our society allows itself to admit. And so this film is a very powerful statement. It's another statement that that we could not and should not be putting uh, senior people in a, in, a, in a home. We should not be putting them in a corner. And and that is that is uh, I, I wrote this. This film urges us viewers to rise above our limited beliefs about aging. And I am very grateful for the film. And <laughs> and uh, the, I want to make sure we get the website about the film out there because you can find the film there. The website is stilldreamingmovie.com. Again, all one word, stilldreamingmovie.com. You can go to that uh, website to find the film. Also, Jill Ann is with us. So if there's any more information about finding the film, she will tell us. So mm-hmm. Jill Ann uh, and Carol, uh, thank you for that film. It's really, really it's heartwarming and uh, and thrilling to see it at the same time. Thank you, Don. We laughed our way through it, Jillian, and cried. And but my daughter-in-law, who's uh, an acting coach and artistic director of a theater, uh, she she uh, I said, "Well, just watch ten minutes with me." Well, she loved it. She watched the whole thing and was enthralled with it. She thinks what you're doing is so important, and I, I think this is a great family film. As far as I'm concerned, we all loved it. You could so relate every, every age. My granddaughter watched it with me, and my daughter-in-law, and my daughter. We all thought it was marvelous. So, bravo! It's another Thank great you. film you've made. Thank so, you so much. Um, you're so welcome. I really, I really think you've got a masterpiece here. So, tell us how you decided to make Still Dreaming, and how you found that great location. Well, you know it's. It's always an interesting journey of how you come to make a film. And and for Hank and I, we know it's a probably three- to five-year commitment, so we don't undertake it lightly. Um, We were in the process in 2002 or 2003 of trying to get our previous film funded, um, which was Shakespeare Behind Bars. And we met with – we were at um, Film Week that IFP puts on uh, every year, which was a great opportunity and where we found – a good deal of our funding for Shakespeare Behind Bars. And, and in the process of taking meetings with people, we met with someone from Magnolia, and he said, well, have you ever thought about doing Romeo and Juliet in an old folks' home? And we thought, hmm, that's that's a really interesting idea. Uh, both Hank and I had very close relationships with our grandparents, and our first film together was about elders. And um, so, you know, you kind of throw things in the idea file and – um, we were deep into making Shakespeare Behind Bars at that point. But a few years later when we surfaced, um, we thought, you know, that idea is still resonating for us. And we had so much, such an interesting um, experience to filming Shakespeare in a prison that, you know, we thought, well, if we take a different play and we're in a different sort of unique environment, what would happen? And, you know, would it be the same film or would it be completely different? And that was a sort of concern of ours. Are we just going to make the same film over again? But what happened was that it, it did turn out to be very different um, and a different storytelling process, too, for us. But uh, And the way we found um, the Lillian Booth Actors' Home was that... Uh, 
Hank thought, you know, he, Hank is an actor as well, and he thought that, well, it's probably a good idea to try and find a retirement home or facility that's actually doing Shakespeare already. Um, and the Lillian Booth Actors Home was one that we found, um, and they had a Shakespeare club, and they were very eager to kind of step it up and raise the stakes for themselves. And so, um, and the facility was totally on board, um, you know, for having us come there. And, and that was important. They gave us full access, you know, because the way we make films is, you know, we're not just going to tell the happy story. We're going to tell the warts and all story. And that takes a lot of courage for an institution to let you in and, and to do that. And so I give them a lot of credit um, at the Lillian booth for, for letting us in and showing us everything. But they seem to me marvelous people to work with. They really were. Um, it was my favorite film that I've ever made in terms of the day-to-day, you know, and going and being with the people that you're working with and filming and stepping into their lives. I just, it was just a roller coaster ride and a joy to go every day um, to be with them. Well, was it six weeks of filming? Yeah, so we we basically we live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and we moved our family to New Jersey for the summer, and we um, rented a house a couple blocks from the the home, and um, we were there about eight weeks altogether. But the the play was a six week process, so they started in the end of June and and finished in the beginning of August, and um, it was a five day you know, week of rehearsals for them for six weeks. So it was very intense. Well, did you interview the residents before you made the final decision, or or was it half the residents and half the home that you found? Well, you know, you have to feel like we always go to a place um, to check it out before we decide to really invest that much time that we know it's going to take and all the leap of faith that we have to make and, you know, all the sort of resources we're going to have to marshal, um, we have to have confidence that the group we're going to be with wants us there, number one, and has a lot of interesting things going on. You know, there's got to be a lot of potential for drama and backstory and, um, you know, sort of plot playing out. So we went um, maybe in 2009 to make our first visit, and we loved the home. The people were very welcoming. The residents seemed to have really interesting backgrounds. Um, They seemed to be pretty curious about the process we were proposing, you know, which was to do a full-length Shakespeare play. Um, But it was hard because uh, we didn't get the funding right away. You know, it's always a process to raise the money. And by the time we went back a year later to actually shoot some research footage, the population who was interested had kind of shifted, you know. So some of the, some of the people were the same. A few people had passed away. There were other new people in the group. And then um, it took another year to actually get enough funding to start production. So I did go visit a couple times leading up to the, sh- the beginning of shooting, but um, I have to say that Hank and I were not completely confident. <laughs> um, even though we sort of went all in and decided we wanted to make this film, we weren't sure who was going to show up the first day. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, can, and, I believe you from what I saw. Yeah, 
Right. And um, it was so funny that first day because a lot of people showed up and they they gave the young directors a really hard time, the play directors, um, which was, you know, so then we knew, okay, this is happening. But really, honestly, until that first morning, we were nervous, really nervous, because Demo also, who ends up being one of our main characters and who we were really kind of counting on, you know, from our research, we thought this this gentleman, Demo, was going to be a strong character. And he does end up being a strong character in the film. But when we landed on the ground in New Jersey to start filming and settle in, he was in the hospital. And we thought, oh, my God, no, (laughs) he can't be in the hospital. He's got to come back. And um, lucky for us, he did. He did make it back for the first day, and he proves for um, some very interesting interactions during the film. Oh, he's brilliant, and what a wonderful artist. He has such an eye. Uh, we get to watch uh, Demo pick up rocks and sticks and mushrooms and things, mm-hmm. and then you see the art that he creates with them. It's incredible. Uh, and he, his character, uh, the person that he is, reminded me a lot of Christopher Walken. Oh, yeah. He's, right? That's hilarious because, you know, Hank and I always play that game. Well, if we made the fiction version, who would we cast? And he, he definitely was Christopher Walken. <laughs> you hit it right on the nose, Carol. Of course. Oh, great. Well, tell us some of the surprises that happened in production. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the whole ride is a surprise, and that's probably why I love making documentaries. I'm kind of an adrenaline junkie in that way, I think, like a storytelling adrenaline junkie. Um, Because, you know, I was thinking about it this morning, and I've worked on fiction films just on the crew a lot, and I think that when you you set out to make a fiction film, you already know what the story is, you already know what's going to happen to the characters, and the process of making the film is like a logistical challenge. You know, but when you set out to make a documentary, it's really a storytelling challenge because you you don't know um, what's going to happen from day to day, obviously, and you don't even know who your main characters are going to turn out to be. And, you know, like we did sort of have, obviously, an idea that Demo would be a main character, but there's another person in the film who you might have noticed, um, and I should say, too, that the elder acting troupe is they're they're um challenged to put on a full production of a midsummer night's dream so the story is a complicated story and it's a bit hard for them to follow even while they're doing it but um one of the amazing storylines in midsummer night's dream is that hermia who's one of considered one of the young lovers in the play is um basically being forced by her father to marry someone she doesn't love. And a lot ensues around that particular plot point. Um, And as we began filming, you know, people were standing out to us, like Demo and this other woman, Charlotte Fairchild, who's an incredible singer, had done a lot of stuff on Broadway, um, and very funny. Um, And there was another Irish actress, Aideen O'Kelly, who'd been on Broadway with James Earl Jones and Christopher Plummer and Othello and just a very distinguished career and she's very fiery and you know was kind of giving these young director Mm -hmm. boys a hard time from the beginning Um, but there was this very quiet person named Lynette Luce and she had never acted before she was in the home because her son is in in theater and so she that's how she was able to get into the home and 
um, she was very shy and very um, nervous. And we thought, oh, you know, okay, she's not really striking us, but she happened to be re- she she got cast as Hermia, so she got cast as the person who, um, you know, is being forced to marry someone that she doesn't love. So that didn't really mean anything to us when everything started. But as we were filming, maybe week two or so, we were we went to film a rehearsal of between her and her counterpart John, who played Lysander, and we were interested in John as a main character. But what happened during that rehearsal was they're outside in a little gazebo, and they start talking about, you know, what's what are their characters like? And and John says, well, you have to put your 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 life experience into your character. And Lynette thinks about that for a second, and she has this aha moment. She says, you know, and she starts to tell John her true story about how her actual real father had basically forced her to marry someone she didn't love. And she had married this person. She'd had five children with this person, and ultimately they divorced. But this was like, you know, for us as documentary filmmakers, that was the bomb dropping. You know, like, oh, my God. Okay, main character alert. Now Lynette is on our radar. Um, that was one of the best surprises, I think. And that, But that kind of thing happens all the time when you're making a film, a documentary, and it's really the process of listening you know, to what's happening and responding to that versus, like, putting on top of the characters who are there what you want to happen. You know, you can't control it. So that was a good story. I have many others, but I don't know how long you want me to go on about that. Well, I have to say uh, that was a very important part of the film to me. It was a shocking part because she announced it so um sincerely and so honestly and um and it wasn't uh, and it it made you realize that she is living this dream she will be able to do that part if she pulls on that life experience and how unique what a what a strange occurrence that you found the right person <laughs> yeah <it's>, so <laughs> shocking right right and the director's uh, ben and Noah cast her as Hermia, and they never knew the entire time. They never knew that about her real life story until they saw the film. <laughs> oh my heavens! And I didn't even realize that. But basically, what you know, we spent a lot more time with the characters and interviewing them about their backstories and and getting these sort of off rehearsal scenes. You know, and the directors weren't present for those things. So that was re- interesting. Um, I don't think I even quite realized that Ben and Noah didn't know that about her until they saw the film. But it plays out in the film as a really is is an interesting storyline because she basically Lynette as a person has to she finds her voice for the first time in her life at age 68 um, through the process of doing this play. So in other in some ways this is real therapy for her. She she finds her strength and and works through that situation that she lived through. 
Well, you did a very good job with um, with the camera. We felt like that. I felt like I was there. I mean, I was so involved in the scenes and got so close to the characters. And one of my favorite scenes was when the two directors, having had such an extraordinary week of surprises and shocks, and I'm leaving. We've got to talk about the lady that was always leaving, and, and, and they couldn't tell if it was her real or not. Anyway, they're walking down the street and they're talking to each other and the things they said, and we're looking from a distance, but we could hear them talk. That was one of my favorite scenes where they said, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, is what they were saying in effect. Right. Right. It was wonderful. Thank you. And that's the fun of like putting a lavalier mic, a wireless mic on someone and having them walk away and they do kind of forget, you know, (laughs) that you're around and um, yes, but it, yeah. it sounded like that. It sounded like you could hear them if you were walking beside them or behind them, but you weren't mm-hmm. supposed to really hear it because right. <laughs> I don't think they wanted everybody to know what they were thinking. Right. right. Oh, it was so good. But the, the six weeks of rehearsal put an urgency in the film. And uh, I have to tell everybody, see, we were kept up to date on how much time was left. It would say week three or week four. And by then I was getting so nervous because I didn't think (laughs) that that the actors are going to be ready opening day and knowing that they'd all invited their families and what's going to happen. And you just tense up. So you really created a lot of tension in the film with that uh, time limit. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a good way to sort of organize the narrative, too, and just let audiences know where we are in the process because there's so much going on and people are dropping out and new people are coming in and, you know, things are falling to pieces and yet there's a moment of hope. And (laughs) so it's just kind of, you know, giving you a roadmap as a viewer, I think, is important, you know. Yes. Well, I noticed that the residents began to dress better, and they started looking better. I don't know if it was makeup or hair or what they were doing, or maybe it was uh, uh, they were happier. But they they seemed to look better to me by the end of the six weeks. Do you think the play really made an impact on them? Well, absolutely. It made a huge impact on them, um, and you're right, and I'm glad you picked up on that. Um, they were so enlivened by the process. And I think that's, you know, sort of the big message to take away here is that um, having meaningful creative engagement was hugely energizing for them. And also it created community for them. So instead of being in a place where everyone's isolated and kind of keeping to themselves, even in this beautiful home, it bringing them out of their rooms, it's bringing them together, they're laughing, they're, you know, um, teasing each other, they're they're forming friendships that really weren't there prior, um, and plus the fact they're getting all this sort of physical, you know, they're up on their feet, they're forgetting their canes, they're, um, you know, these people are in their 80s, and some of them are really frail and even the ones in the wheelchairs are starting to you know move their arms again one's a dancer and he's in a wheelchair and he's been on broadway in 14 broadway shows as a dancer you know and so he's he starts bob evans he he starts using his arms again you know and and putting in those 
he's got beautiful form, even though he can't. He even tried to get up and dance, but that was still too much for him. Um, um, and the other thing was that it also affected just the general population at the home. So it wasn't even just the people participating. Um, there was sort of this excitement buzzing throughout the home that brought people out of out of their rooms, and they knew something interesting was going on, and they would all wait outside in the hallway and kind of watch, and you know, so it was pretty cool to see. Oh, I'm so happy you made this. What a fun thing for you. I'm, I know, I can understand from seeing the film how you must have enjoyed it. And what your contribution is to society, we don't know yet. In three to five years, Jillian, you'll know, because I think this is going to have a major impact on a lot of people. Um, hopefully people will see it whose parents are in retirement homes and they'll pay more attention to them or recognize that they're, they still have talent or they still have ability to create in one form or another and give them more attention. Um, so tell us what your plans are for marketing and distribution. Well, um, I thank you for saying that. That means a lot to me, and I feel like... It's sort of been an uphill distribution process with this film because I think there's a lot of ageism out there, and I think we all just don't want to think about aging. You know, we go, oh, there's nothing good about that, right? But <laughs> right. in reality, there is a lot of richness that we can engage in through the last, very last day, you know, um, of our lives. And that's really what we, the message we wanted to put out there was, Yes, we should take better care of our elders, as Don said, but also for our own selves, there's a lot of hope and a lot of fun things to do as we age um, and and that can actually, you know, just make our lives even better and better. Um, and, you know, like there's the character Mary who comes in halfway through the process. She's a fill-in for someone, and she's 84, and she finds out that she should have been a stand-up comedian, you know, and, and <laughs> she can be. At this home, she sort of finds that she can sing and she can act and she's funny, and, you know, obviously I'm sure people have been laughing at her jokes her whole life, but she really actually gets a venue for it and has a blast. And um, so, you know, in terms of distribution, um, we are really going after our core audience, which is the aging um, audience and the Shakespeare audience primarily. But then, obviously, this applies to everyone. So we we then ripple out to the general audience, and, and that's just sort of a process that's organic. Um, but we've we've gone to and been um pres- you know highlighted a bunch of aging conferences and there's a very emergent movement around arts and aging and um it's interesting cuz Shakespeare behind bars came out 11 years ago and Hank just um went to a Shakespeare conference a major Shakespeare conference with still dreaming and he met someone there who said you know your film Shakespeare behind bars has it sparked a huge movement that's just now kind of really proliferating, which is um, prison arts and looking at the incarcerated and seeing how the arts really helps people um, work through what they've done and find out who they are and kind of rehabilitate or habilitate them. Um, And that was extremely um, gratifying to hear that, 
and and I know just because the film keeps Shakespeare Behind Bars keeps getting booked, you know, like for screenings all over the place. So that's what I hope happens with Still Dreaming that that it has a long life. It's it's a timeless film, and um, so it is viewable at our website stilldreamingmovie.com. You can stream it. You can buy a DVD, and if you have Amazon Prime, it's also available there. Um, oh, wonderful! And and there's, you know, it's uh, it's also going to have a PBS broadcast in late, late this year or early 2017. So that'll be fantastic. Oh, that's marvelous. Yeah. Yeah. So well, is it's it a, is it it's a, too early to ask what's your next project? Do you have anything <laughs> in mind? Um, my next project is is enjoying my family for the summer. I feel like uh, I really just want to dig into my own life at the moment. And um, we've spent a lot of years making this film and a, and, a, and a year and a half really working on distribution, though it just got released on home video. We did a lot of, you know, of that core audience distribution. So I am working on some small projects. Uh, I'm working on a web series for Zillow, the real estate website, and doing some really fun doc pieces on some interesting kind of outsider builders. Um, there's there's one uh, called Dan Phillips, and he has a company called Phoenix Commotion, and he builds houses out of just about 80% recycled materials, and he'll build really wacky things. Like right now he's working on a house that looks like a cowboy boot and <laughs> you know they cost under fifty thousand dollars as opposed to two hundred thousand dollars you know which is the average in in the area his, he's building in um so they're really incredible fun things and we had a blast um making a film about him and and so we're we're doing some more pieces for them and um so still percolating on what's the next, you know, feature-length, character-driven story. Um, but we'll let you know. Okay, Jillian. Thank you so much for sharing this information with us. I really enjoyed getting to talk to you. It's been a long time. Yeah, thank you, Carol. You've always been so supportive, and I, I really appreciate how you advocate for, for all documentary filmmakers. You're one of our angels out there, and we need you oh. desperately, so thank you. Oh, thanks. That's very kind. And, Don, we loved your review. That was great. Thank you. So till next uh, time, Jillian, we'd love to have you on whenever you're available. All right. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. So, Don, let's get your review of the film, The Professor. The Professor. It's a, a very sweet film. It's, a, it's also educational, and it's a fun film. And it is, the subtitle for The Professor is called is Tai Chi's Journey West. And it's directed by Barry Strugatz. I'm, I'm going to spell this. S-T-R-U-G-A-T-Z, Barry Strugatz, and it's released by First Run Features, so you can find it just by going to firstrunfeatures.com. And uh, Barry Strugatz tells the story of a gentleman named Cheng Men Ching, and he is from China, and he is the acknowledged master who brought Tai Chi to the West, and he was born in 1901 and uh, passed away in 1975 and uh, 
they call him Manching for short, or the professor. He did not speak English. He used translators. And when he came here, uh, people fell in love with him. He, he attracted people without having to do anything. And the film shows, uh, the film tells his bi- biography. It shows him in class. It shows him an interview. Uh, well, an interview as much as possible with a translator. And in addition to being a Tai Chi master, he also was a master of calligraphy, and he was also a master of sword, sword combat. And he ended up in New York, and one of the uh, subplots of this film is that he came up against his own Chinese culture. The Chinese people living in New York at that time were deeply uh, offended and uh, against him giving what they thought was secrets to Westerners. But uh, Manching uh, didn't hesitate to share anything and everything of himself. And uh, got to you know, relax your jaw. Some of the things that, that Manching does as a practitioner are just jaw-dropping. And, uh, and, and uh, the filmmaker, who is obviously a student of uh, Manching, he captures the man's spirit. We, we, it's very hard to hear his voice. He's very, he speaks softly. But the, he's sweet, he's powerful, he's generous, and, and that all comes through. And at the end of the film, uh, uh, in terms of his impact on the world, this business about helping bring Tai Chi west, he, he helped bring Tai Chi everywhere. There are, uh, there's a montage of Tai Chi classes around the world, in, including in nations you would think uh, the culture would not allow it. So something about this gentleman was totally magical. Again, the name of the film is The Professor, Tai Chi's Journey West. It is a delightful film. It's a fun film, and uh, I'd be happy to see it again. Well, did they mention much about the uh, health benefits of Tai Chi? They, uh, uh, I, you know, the truth is I, they must have, but th- that did not impress me as much as the, the m- much of the film as the students his former students uh, talking about him. These are students that became Tai Chi masters and teachers. And uh-huh. the affection that they have for him and, uh, and the impact that they would not be who they become if it hadn't been for this one man. Uh, it just, but I tell, you, I tell you something. I have, to, I, I have thought about Tai Chi for decades. Oh, I should do Tai Chi. I guess I should do Tai Chi. I am going to do Tai Chi after seeing this film. Oh, that's good, because I know people who've done it, and it's been very helpful to them in energy. And you won't believe what you're doing and how you're stretching your body and holding those positions. It's not easy, but it looks wonderful, and it's very calming. So you'll find a lot of benefit in it. I think it's a good idea. Now, let's go to the next film, because I'm really interested in hearing this one, The Pursuit of Silence. Uh, yes. Uh, in, uh, the, name of the, the name of the film is In Pursuit of Silence, and it is directed and shot by a gentleman named Patrick Shen, S-H-E-N, and it's produced by Transcendental Media. And before I go on, the, the fastest and easiest way to find the film is simply from the website Pursuit of Silence. PursuitOfSilence.com. This is a film about noise, sound, silence, and solitude. And it is about the 
the adverse effect of noise in our world, the world that we created, the noises that we create, and about the value of, of silence and the value of solitude. And, and the, film, the film walks at talk. All, all the virtues and, and qualities of silence and solitude informed the production of the movie, informed how they put it together. So as the film starts out, after just a few seconds, you begin to enter a meditative state. But it's still a documentary film. It's still giving you a lot of information. But the, film, the music, the images, the editing all bring you into uh, not the, just the idea, oh, silence is good, uh, uh, noise is damaging. You, you, are, you get that information, but you're brought into that world. You're brought into what it feels like. And what they do is between uh, long shots of quiet, they, they interview a variety of people who they all have insight or wisdom. Uh, they, they talk about uh, sound and noise and, and the value of uh, silence and solitude. And I need to emphasize the cinematography is stunning in this film. It is part of what draws you into it. And, again, that is by Patrick Shen. And the music is also perfect. It, it, it complements it the images. It, it, it participates in bringing you into, the, into the, the flow of the film. And so I don't usually talk about uh, music in, uh, when I talk about, uh, when we talk about documentary films, but I want to mention the name, Alex Liu. Alex Liu, his last name is L-U. He, gave, he made beautiful music for this film. Uh, one, of the, one of the fun things I, I learned about was a company an international company called Quiet Mark, M-A-R-K, Quiet Mark, and they're all about taking all the various devices and engines uh, of our society and seeing how they can make them with as little sound as possible, make them reduce the amount of sound they generate. And Quiet Mark is, is, a, uh, is a, powerful, a powerful company. They, they're offering a lot for consumers, not just for manufacturers. I also learned about something... I never heard of before, and I kind of laughed when I heard about it, but it made sense. There is something called forest therapy, and you can go to the Association of Nature and Forest Therapy and find a forest therapist practitioner near you. And it's a sad comment that, that uh, we have to package going into nature. <laughs> but but, but it, it's working. You know, I even thought about maybe I should get trained as a forest therapist. So, again, it's called In Pursuit of Silence by Patrick Shen. Oh, it sounds marvelous. Thank you so much, Don. Well, I want to tell you about Requiem for the American Dream. Uh, it's a wonderful interview with Noam Chomsky. It's by Gravitas. It's being distributed by Gravitas Ventures, and it's made by Peter Hutchison, Kelly Nikes, and Jared Scott to whom I will forever be grateful because this is a film that all of us need to see. Anyone who loves America and sees what's happening to us today really needs to sit and listen to Noam explain how this has happened. Uh, I would say this film is probably one of the most important documentaries on the state of our economy and the fate of this nation. Our beloved Noam Chomsky gives us his insights on where we are at this time as a nation and as a democracy. 
He starts by saying that in the Great Depression, there was always a sense of hopefulness that things would get better, and there is none of that today. Our country now has total inequity. He says that it's the worst in history, and it comes from extreme wealth in the hands of a fraction of 1% of the population. This period of extreme inequity comes from super wealth. He calls it literally one-tenth of 1% of the super wealthy, and that it has negative senses. Inequality has um, a corrosive effect on democracy. Um, Before, there was a middle-class mobility where if you worked hard, you could get a decent job, buy a car, a home, and you could send your kids to school. But this has all collapsed. And uh, in the film, Noam gives us his ten principles of concentration of wealth and power so we understand how it happened. And one principle is that they've created a tax policy uh, through deregulations and political measures to increase the concentration of wealth and powers, uh, which then yields even more power to the wealthy. So number two, he said, was reduce democracy because there is an ongoing clash between pressure for more freedom from democracy coming from below and pressure for more control coming from above. And we all know who's winning, right? And Madison, he goes back to Madison telling us that the U.S. system should be designed so power was in the hands of the wealthy because they were more responsible. And that's really what's happened His number three tenet is the major event was to redesign the economy. He says a concerted effort was made to shift the economy and to increase the role of financial institutions, banks, insurance companies, and so forth. And by 2007, they had 40% of the corporate profits beyond anything in the past. Then he covered attack solidarity. Noam says, you know, it's dangerous just to care about yourself. He went back to Adam Smith, who says sympathy is a normal human trait. And Norm says this has to be driven out of people's heads, basic human emotions, because um, you see attacks on our Social Security based on the principle uh, of solidarity, which is caring for others. Like he said, I pay payroll taxes so others can benefit. But this doesn't benefit the rich, so they want to destroy it. And he goes on and explains that whole concept. Each one of the ten concepts, he gives you a great deal of information. Uh, They engineer elections. Now that corporations are considered people, they can buy a president. Um, He says number eight is keep the rebel in line. A major, major reason for this massive attack on unions is that they are a democratizing force, and they have to be dismantled because this interferes with the people who own power. So a position of anti-union is strong. Then he gets into manufacturing consent and teaches us that public relations and advertising is a phenomenon developed in the free countries, and the reason is clear, because it's not easy to control by force. So they had to have another means, and they understood that if you have to control people by controlling their beliefs and their attitudes. So making 
People want to obtain things in their life. Go shopping, buy this, buy that. You can improve your life if you have one of these gadgets. That's what you need. And he mentioned how all the teenagers uh, you'll find in the malls, not in the libraries. They're out looking to shop. And as a way out of this, he quoted Howard Zinn, who said that what matters is the countless small deeds of unknown people who lay the basis for the groundwork for significant events that enter history. I think this is a very important film, and I highly recommend it. Uh, I think we need to take our power back, and perhaps it's just as Howard said, and our small deeds in supporting each other. So, Don, I highly recommend you see this film. I will. It's a shocker. <clears throat> oh, uh, I, I, it's one of those things where uh, I, I would be saddened, but I'm sorry, I wouldn't be surprised. I've seen so many documentary films about about uh, economic inequities, and uh, Noam Chomsky is a hero, and he has not been given the public accolades he truly deserves. Oh, he's, he is, in my opinion, the, what, the greatest uh, voice we have at the present, and we really must listen to him. This could be his last film. We don't, we don't know. He's up there in age, so we must pay attention. So um, give us your review of the next film. Indian Point. Indian Point is written and directed by a veteran filmmaker named Ivy Mirapol, and it's also a first-run features film, and it's about nuclear energy. And you cannot have too many films about nuclear energy. It's, it's one of those uh, horrific uh, facts of life that we uh, totally ignore in our day-to-day life. And this is as powerful a, a film about uh, nuclear energy as, as I've ever seen. And its focal point is Indian Point, which is a nuclear facility uh, that's on the Hudson River about 35 miles from New York City. And at the time of filming, they were were preparing the the facility for its relicensing. And the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission does that process of relicensing of uh, plants. And uh, so the film covers the, the usual pro and con forces uh, at work uh, making their their well-worn arguments about why we should or should not have nuclear energy. But what's different with this film is that this is going on after Fukushima, and and this has supercharged uh, this fight between the pro and con forces. Uh, Mirapol brings us deep into this nuclear facility and with slow-moving pans, and as that camera slowly pans in the, the depths of, of this plant, you, are getting, you receive a, a silent, ominous portent of a disaster movie. It's just like watching the beginning of a disaster movie. So at this point in time, also, at uh, the, the making of the film, our nuclear plants are aging, and they either need to be upgraded seriously or totally replaced. And... Uh, that, and so there's a, there, there are other forces at work because of this need for upgrading because that means it's going to take billions, if not of trillions, to up, upgrade or replace our plants. Now, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission uh, is a sad old story. It's, it's, uh, it doesn't work for us. It works for the profit-making companies that own the plants. And 
so so essentially uh, there's a cavalier treatment going on of of our use of nuclear energy. We just it's it's uh, there's just the risks are just ignored, uh, and and the news media coverage, which is why we need to watch documentary films because you do not get this information from our new mainstream news. Uh, 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 it's, it's absent. You need to watch these kinds of films. And this, this particular film, Indian Point, is a great opportunity to uh, think about and consider uh, the environmental issues that this film brings out. Again, it's 35 miles away from New York City. And within a 50-mile radius of Indian Point, over 50 over 50 million, that's uh, uh, 50, five, zero million people live. And one of the dangers of nuclear power plants that, that Ivy Mirapol does not go into is terrorism, because all you have to do is stop the electrical power at a power plant, at a nuclear power facility, and you've got a meltdown. Uh, the film premiered uh, 2015's Tribeca Film Festival. It was, it, it was good, it didn't get censored. And, uh, it, again, it's a first-run features film, and the title of it is Indian Point. And that's it. Great. Thank you, Don. Don, that's Great. marvelous. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Now, next week on the Art of Film Funding, uh, filmmaking, we're going to have Jason Brubaker to share his Internet distribution and marketing with us, so please join us then. But thanks, Claire, and thank you, Don, for a wonderful show today. Well, thank you, Carol. Thank you, Claire. Yes, it was wonderful, and Jill Ann was a, a pure joy to have on, too. All right, everyone, be well. Oh, yes. Okay. Bye. Bye, Carol. Be well. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.